Hello. Welcome again to our frequent podcast called Wear Many Hats, inspired by Ethan Hawkey. Throughout the year, I, David Punter, the Business Development Director for Hawkey Cleaning and Support Services, shall be interviewing prominent facilities management and procurement subject matter experts across a range of industry market sectors. It's these people with their wealth of knowledge and experience that will inspire the next generation of young professionals coming through the ranks. Our objective is to share our guests' stories and experiences to help motivate, engage and inspire others into the industry. We hope our listeners will gain new perspectives, insights and learn about strategies to develop their careers in the FM procurement business. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Gary Metcalf and you are from Ashdown Phillips. Thank you, uh, Gary, for coming here today. Um, What I'd like to do without further ado is to launch straight into um, the questions. Gary, what I wanted to try and understand, and I've always asked a lot of people this, is that how they entered or you entered your journey into uh, a career in facilities management. I mean, uh, first and foremost, it wasn't by choice. Um, I did a qualification at college in uh, art and design, and I was due to go back and do a BA in photography, um, which was quite a high-profile qualification. It was something I would be passionate about. Um, During the summer, I got a job as a cleaner, working for a cleaning company in the West End. Okay. Uh, I was a family member, so they had their own cleaning business. It was very successful, did a lot of retail Regent Street and Oxford Street, and they said, a little bit like Hawkey, then very, very much like Hawkey. Yeah, so they said, well, We want to get you in, uh, come and earn some money. So, when you go back to university, you can sort of pay your way to a certain extent. You can buy all your materials, a new camera, new lenses, stuff like that. So, I was quite excited, uh, to get out there in the working world. And then within a week, I was on my hands and knees in Dulcis shoe shop on Oxford Street. Uh, scrubbing behind toilets, toilet bowls, cleaning skirtings. Um, and I absolutely loved it. On your hands and knees? I loved being on my hands and knees scrubbing. <laughs> um, it was good because it was liberating because you actually had a sense of achievement. So you'd walk into an area and it was dirty and then you fixed it. Okay. And that passion for fixing things then uh, led me to go on to be a contract manager um was that with the same cleaning company different or? cleaning company okay different cleaning companies this was very early on in the west end then i got an opportunity to branch out and go and do something completely different in security um some friends of mine in the croydon area said would you like to come and work with us uh it's more money it's longer hours you know you can make more and the progression is is quite quick so i took them up on the on the option and then I worked in a shopping centre in Croydon called the Whitgift Shopping Centre. Okay. Um, started off as a security officer in a uniform, 12 hours a day, 60 hours, sometimes 72 hours a week. Long hours. Very long hours, very challenging environment. You weren't studying at that time? No, to be fair, I'd given up on the idea because money came along. Okay. And, you know, at that sort of age, 18, 19 you want to branch out, you want to get your own place, you want to go out drinking with your friends, and university wouldn't have allowed for that, if I'm honest. So started doing security, um, had an appreciation for that, very quickly worked my way up to supervisor and security manager. Um, 
that was good because I had an understanding the cleaning the cleaning team and what they did and their regimes and PPMs and stuff. So because I had that appreciation, I then had a very um, good bond with the cleaning team, the cleaning manager, had a good rapport. Uh, I did that for several years, um, and in that very same shopping centre. And bearing in mind, this was a shopping centre in the sort of late nineties, early two thousands that had a footfall of like twenty five million. It was, okay. it was one of the largest shopping centers in the UK at that time. It was in the top 20, um, you know, 125 retailers, three floors, very complex. Um, so it was, it was a good place to get your sort of grounding. Um, position came up working for DTZ, who were the property management company at the time. And they approached me and said, look, you know the building better than anybody else. You know, the procedures better than anybody else. Would you like to become the operations manager? So uh, jumped at the chance. Had to jump for a few hoops as well. Had to go through the interview process. And, you know, it was I was up against some good candidates who had had property management experience. So things like service charge, I had no idea. Okay. I'd done a pricing schedule right. when we tendered for the contract. And a funny story is I actually um, work for a company called Reliance Security, who don't exist anymore. I remember the name. Um, yeah, and they were my they were my um, my parent company. I said to them, "Look, I'm going to go for this interview." I was successful and got the job. I then had an opportunity to look at all the costing sheets and saw what they were charging the client for my time, and then what they were paying me, and what they told the client they were paying me at the time. So there was some um, a revelation. There was some disparity between the costs. Let's say that. And then I was my, my first sort of official duty as the operations manager was to have my old employer tender towards me. Okay, so uh, you were basically the other side of the fence. Yeah, poacher uh, turn gamekeeper. Gamekeeper. Um, I mean, what's interesting is that you've had a, a background of obviously working the cleaning and security. So mm. has it always been the soft services side that you preferred um, or did you develop later whilst looking after that building and understanding of the hard FM? Yeah, it's, it's exactly that. So you know, I, I think the the tendency to always veer off to the soft was easier um, and not because it's easier, it's just because um, it's an area that I understood and I found very easy to fall back into. Okay. Um, there was a technical services manager that was in the team, but um, his support and knowledge and the fact that we worked very closely together enabled me to then increase my experience. Okay, so you had someone else that had that um, hard service experience in the team to support that. Yeah. Okay. And 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 so from then, where did you go from that? Position. Um, well, actually, I, I was at the, the Wigib Shopping Centre when the um, JV happened between Hammerson and Westfield. Okay. So I was still there at the time, and I decided that um, after seeing how other Westfield um, purchases had gone, that I decided actually I wanted to make a move. I love the people. I love the community in Croydon. I was very close to all of the retailers. Uh, I was very close to the cleaning team, security team. I've known them for many, many years. So... I decided that actually I wanted to move on, and then I was approached by JLL to work on a scheme in uh, Centre Court in Wimbledon. I remember. Um, so, yeah, smaller, much smaller scheme, mm -hmm. but I felt like I could have more of an influence there. Um, you know, the, the centre manager I worked under, Andrew Bauer at the Whitgift, was absolutely superb, and he was instrumental in, in sort of my development. Um, 
But because he was so good and so knowledgeable, it was really difficult to put your point across or your influence across. Okay. Um, so I wanted to change, went to Centre Court. Um, it was good, really good, but um, retail at the time was really suffering. The retail market was, was you know, Amazon had become larger and larger and people weren't really using their local shops. Right. Um, so I decided on a change. And then from there, I went to London Bridge City, or more London as it was. Okay. Was that still under JLL? No, Broadgate Estates. Oh, Broadgate Estates. Okay. So a very different beast to JLL. So JLL, I was one of 189,000 staff across the world operating in like 92 countries. Um, At Broadgate Estates, I was one of about 230. Okay. Um, So if I was to go to head office, I could sit there and have my lunch next to the chief exec or the MD. Um, and that was great. I love that because you were able to then make a difference, make a difference. Yeah, definitely make a difference. And, and that was really interesting. Um, I joined there as a state manager looking after, uh, you know, 2.5 acres, you know, service charge budget in excess of 20 million across the buildings. Okay. Huge cleaning team. So I think the cleaning team was 129 strong. Um, so yeah this is the one in uh, London Bridge yes okay so yeah so pretty much from we used to call it bridge to bridge yeah so from Tower Bridge to London Bridge that's right we managed everything okay um very good lovely client um but I think I, I was promoted too quickly so I went from being a state manager and I remember sort of going off on holiday for half term and getting a phone call to say oh by the way, you're pretty much going to get promoted when you come back. And I was like, I, that's a nice holiday. I didn't, I didn't even apply for the job. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I was promoted to client services director and that was a very senior position in Broadgate Estates. So you were liaising directly with the client in terms of building that relationship yeah. uh, a lot closer. So your people skills had to be yeah, in line. And, and, and they had to be very sharp because... The, the clients of mine's property investments was part of the QAT royal family. So, okay. you know, it's it, it's a very dynamic relationship. You have to be quick. Everything's urgent. Um, it was it was tough. It was tough. And if I'm honest, I probably wasn't ready for it at that point. Um, and in hindsight, I would have done myself a favour to say thanks, but no thanks. I think someone else should get this position. I didn't know the company well enough. I didn't really know the estate well enough as much okay. as I'd like to. Um, so yeah, I, I decided to, um, move on. I got headhunted, um, by incentive FM to go and work at another huge mixed estate, Covent Garden, um, with a footfall of 45 million. Yes. You know, uh, and growing and growing landmark, you know, landmark location. Um, a lot of other things to consider as well, because, you know, it's all open realm, all public realm everywhere. It's, um, you know, potential terrorist targets. So security is a huge factor, especially then as well, because this mm. is this is not long after the Westminster attacks and stuff. Okay. Like that. So, you know, that was a real focus of ours. Um, again, focused very much on the soft service. Um, there was no real hard services to speak of because it was a lot of the public realm management. That's right. Um, we had a number of properties. So I think we looked after at one point about twenty-two properties across the estate. And I think that was a so that was a combination of retail, residential, and commercial. And commercial, yes, yeah, some okay. commercial, including the clients' offices. Right. 
So, which are on the estate. Which there. are on the estate. So you can imagine at lunchtime and in the evenings, in the mornings, you're going to get the views of 50 different people walking across the estate into the office. You've got to get it right. You've got to get it right. So you've got to be open for business 24-7. Um, and that was our mantra. You know, there were certain things that I used to do, such as, you know, taking the entire team round, you know, every day and just doing a 15, 20-minute walk of the estate. So that was a looking after the security and the cleaning side of that public realm, is yeah, that right? Yeah, and, and handyman services. Okay. We looked after the property. We had the administrators. Um, we had a big FM team, 17, 18 people in that team, all in all. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't include the cleaners or the security staff. Um, it was a challenge. It was a challenge, and it was a challenging environment, and it's one of extreme high pressure. Um, okay. And and then after in, in Centre FM, which has now um, been bought by a larger organisation, mm-hmm. um, uh, you moved on to? BNP Paribas. Okay. So yeah, BNP so Paribas. back to another big organisation. Back to a huge organisation. So you weren't put off by your JLL days? Uh, I, yeah. I, t- to be fair, I think the individuals that I met at BNP made the transition possible. Okay. I, I think they, they encouraged me to join um, because it felt like a team within a team. Okay. So I quite like that. So, so there wouldn't be too much influence of the bank. There wouldn't be too much influence of the other elements of the business. The team um, seemed very close-knit. So it actually fe- felt a lot more like Broadgate Estates as opposed to JLL. But again, it was a client-facing FM role. Yeah, senior FM role. So um, I started actually looking after a, a single standalone property in Victoria, um, which is mm-hmm. a beautiful property um, with a lovely client, but there'd been some issues there. So okay. needed somebody to come with a steady hand and settle the ship. So I did that. Um, then I was promoted to senior FM on major trophy assets. Okay. So I looked after properties in Canary Wharf, King's Cross, Victoria, uh Pretty much everything was over 250,000 square feet. So in there, you had building managers that were reporting to you? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I was involved in the procurement side, although we had a procurement had a procurement, a procurement director. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was a place where you could take the benefits of being a large organisation, such as the financial benefits and the yeah. training, the development, um, and then you could focus on the people side as well. Because we had huge resources internally, right? That you didn't have to get bogged down by the administrative side. You could drive the culture a lot more. Okay, so I mean, what's interesting is that you, if someone was going in their career in FM and stuff, is that there's the one side of the big, almost faceless organisation, and then there's the other one that's the family organisation. But the faceless organisation may actually have the infrastructure in place to allow you to be more in front of the client. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And and that is a balance that a lot of businesses, especially smaller businesses, have to, to toil with on yeah. a regular basis. But it, I, what I'm tr- getting at, really, um, Gary, is that it may have influences your decisions as well to go to a, with a smaller organisation or the, the, the multinational organisation mm. because of how it allowed you to engage with those clients and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what is it... Uh, Back to today. Yeah. Um, what is it that you like about your FM role now? Um, I, I get complete autonomy. I am able to influence everything that I want to influence. Okay. I'm able to understand the company's strategy, structure, purpose. Um, 
I've never had such a say before in in how the company operates and what we do, ever. Uh, okay, so I think, I mean, that's interesting to say that, having gone through the journey of different FM mm. uh, and property managing agents and stuff, is that finally you've got that jewel in the crown thing that's absolutely right for your career. Mm. Yeah, this is this is home. Okay. I mean, genuinely, it's, and it's really difficult to put into words, and I find myself cringing at myself when I interview people because I talk so much and so passionately, passionately. about how much I love the company that I'm worried that I put people off because it sounds quite salesy and a bit cliche, but it, it is absolutely genuine. Well, I'm a selling person, and I'm pretty much um, <laughs> uh, 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 impressed by that. But um, what what is it in terms of which skills are required now, though, for your job? It's, it's really different. Um, my role's changed since I joined the, the business. So, um, again, I, I was approached um, by... You've been approached a lot by these companies. It's because I'm on LinkedIn all thing. the time. That's what it is. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they, they approached me and said, look, would you, would you be interested in coming to work for us? And But after meeting the team at Ashdown Phillips, it was just it was great. Everything they said was music to my ears. Um, and the role's changed. So I, I joined initially as, a, as an, an AD on the FK okay. team. Um and subsequently looked after the FM team for London and the South, which involved all of our London and South properties. Okay. So having a relationship with multiple clients and getting involved in, in different areas um, during the course of COVID. So I joined actually the week before the national lockdown. Yeah, I think our last podcaster had a similar story where it was uh, thrown straight in week before lockdown yeah. and then there was no one in the office. No, and, and, and it also it worries you because you think, I've just joined an organization. I've left a, a profitable role, um, which if I wanted it probably could have been mine for life and I could have grown steadily throughout the business. Um, and I've just joined this, this new company, which is very young um, in terms of all the other organizations, but very young, uh, quite small. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, have I made the right decision? Because I'm the last one in the door. I could be the first one out the door. Um, but obviously that is not how it transpired. And in fact, they said, great, you've got bags of experience. COVID's just happened. Nobody's got a plan for it. You're leading the project team. Okay. And that that's sort of the what skills that is required to do the job, you would say? Yeah. So I think, I think um, being flexible is, is a huge benefit. You know, thinking on your feet is, is, is massive in our industry. Um, being able to accommodate people is really important. So, you know, if you've got a particular difficult client or a particular difficult occupier or a particularly difficult member of staff, you, you have to be able to adapt who you are and change. Okay. Um, have you brought staff in since you've been there? I have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I have. Yeah. And, and, you know, some work out and some don't. And it, it's, it's really difficult because um, some people can adapt to change. And we've seen huge change in our industry in the last three years. We have. Um, you know, not just as a result of COVID, but as a result of innovation and technology enhancements and people hybrid working, people looking at different spaces and, and space requirements has changed. Um, so that adaptability is massive. Okay. Um, so I think that there, that's that's key for me. And I think that's something that I've been able to show over the years going from, you know, retail or, you know, cleaning, security, retail management, mm-hmm. and onto commercial. So if I was to ask Gary, you know, Gary, what 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 does a typical day look like to you? 
I'll, I'll give you one historic one. Okay. Because it's a great example. Um, it was when I was client service director at London Bridge City. And we had uh, a phone call from David Cameron's press secretary at the time. So he was prime minister. Okay. To say that they'd like to come down with the Indian prime minister and do a photo shoot on the estate. You know, it's an iconic location. Mm-hmm. You've got the backdrop of the city behind Canary Wharf and Tower Bridge. So I was like, yeah, absolutely no problem. You can come and do that. So we brief our security team. We get everything up and running. We have procedures and protocols that we put in place. Um, about an hour before that, though, we had 500 people dressed as penguins walking across the estate because it was the annual penguin model for charity. Uh, <laughs> about an hour after that, we had the top 10 tennis players in the world coming for the ATP draw at City Hall because City Hall were an occupier of ours. So they were coming to see Boris and do the draw up the top. Did you know they were coming? Yep. So, okay. this, so some of this was planned in. Um, right in the middle of all of this, we had some fracking protesters uh, superglue themselves to scaffold poles outside City Hall. Um, couldn't that, write it, really, could you? You, you couldn't write it. And, that, and that's that's a, a tip. It's not a typical day, but that is a day then. That's what happens. And it's that adaptability. So you would have had plans all day long. I know exactly what I'm going to do. And all of a sudden it goes out the window. Now it's a bit more settled. It's a bit more structured. Um, but with all the best intentions, I can head into London in the morning on the train thinking, right, I've got a nine o'clock meeting here. I've got a 10 o'clock meeting here. Something happens and it goes out the window. Um, and it's about being reactive, but okay. also making our clients aware that it is a reactive industry. And sometimes, you know, the demands of another property or another client, uh, have to take priority. Yeah. But communication is obviously key with that. But yeah, now my role is very different. You know, heading up ESG for the business and design for management, which is very new. It's a it's a new arm of the FM industry. Okay, um, one that is extremely exciting. Great. I mean, we, we are going to touch a little bit on that um, in some of my other questions that uh, I've got for you here. Um, but before that, um, what would you say to someone um, by way of advice if they were starting their career off in the FM um, industry? Uh, I'd encourage them to to go for it. I think we are slowly facing a problem in our industry where we're struggling to recruit people. Why do you think that is? I I don't think it's the financial um, the, the incentives that are the, the financial for people because I think the money is there and I think the pay is is fair and just. Um, I think it's it's exceptionally more than a lot of industries if you come in at a junior level. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we advertise it enough. I don't think people know what we do. I think we tend to be quite faceless as an organisation. Okay. Um, we hope these podcasts will help in that uh, respect. Yeah. And, to, and to be honest, that's it's the reason that I said I'd be definitely happy to do it because, um, you know, I've offered to do talks in schools, in colleges, in universities, because we are the people that make all the buildings run, be yeah. it hospital, be it train stations, be it schools. You know, if FM's tomorrow decided to go on strike like so many other organisations at the moment in industries, people I don't think people realise the impact that would have. Huge. You know, it'd be huge, absolutely huge. You know, we, we keep London and, you know, England and Europe, we, we keep it ticking and it's really important that we, we're recognised but also that we have a spokesperson or we have people that stand up and say what we do and that's not just fms that's cleaners that's security that's maintenance engineers mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's 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 something that uh, I think it's it's that hidden um, career choice that has such a massive impact on 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 how our buildings and and properties and even public realm run. Yeah. Um, look, looking specifically at facilities management, has the way do you think the facilities management changed over the years? Yeah, I I, I always refer to you know a, a Jeff or a Deborah. Um, in a basement with an old British home stores shirt on with pens in the pockets. Um, you know, never really sees anybody goes around with a huge key ring, like a building superintendent. Yeah. Um, that's what we were. We were like police officers. You know, we would enforce the lease. We'd go around and say, this is what you don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Um, it then became slightly different and we just we started doing sort of the financial side of it with service charges. It used to be very surveyor-led service charges. Yeah. FM started to take a bit more of the lead on that or in a, in a joint partnership with, with surveyors. Now we've got to be placemakers. We've got to be uh, sustainability experts. Yeah. We've got to be building optimization experts. We've got to be innovators. You know, we 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 have to have a tripartite relationship with the occupier with the landlord we need to even consider things like you know um driving the asset value of the business yeah fms wouldn't have thought about that that would have been a surveyor thing to do fms would never have been involved in that so the surveyors have moved back out of that and it's become more the domain of the fm um yeah i I think it depends on the organization some some are very traditional okay um ashdown phillips is this is joined up you know we do it as a team so you might have you might have an fm who's very very strong on the enlivenment and the engagement okay um but arguably you might have a surveyor who's very strong on the technical side or you know driving the asset value so um it's about finding the right mix of individuals for the right property no it's that's that's a very interesting point now, moving on specifically with, with your role of expertise, um, how important are ESG issues affecting today's procurement decisions? It, I, I don't think it's affecting it enough. Okay. It should. Um, we are um, huge on uh, real living wage and London living wage in our contracts and our procurement. Um, we are insisting on it. In the majority of cases where the, the budget allows and the client allows for it. And if the client doesn't allow for that? We will push the client as much as we possibly can and, and be very honest with the client as well, um, you know, in terms of longevity of staff, performance of staff. Um, we will do everything we can to encourage the client to put in. And to be fair, um, you know, 95% of our contracts are at that level. We are a real living wage accredited um, organization. organization so um, social value is obviously also massively important for me okay um, in so, terms of so recruiting locally bringing people from the local community into employment supporting the local community as well so occupier engagement opportunities where we can bring local community people in okay um you know do you make, think it's just a tick box with your organization uh for us no for some organizations i do Okay, I, I definitely do. Um, I think we have things like pro bono days where we go and help land dates. We did some leases for them. Um, I don't think we shout enough as an organisation of, of what we do. Um, I, I was in a position where I, I think I 
got that head of ESG role because I was quite vocal. So I was on the sustainability committee and I was concentrating on things like environmental impact. So reducing the energy consumption in our buildings okay. for like, optim- optimization. Um, and then I used to go on the calls and I'd spend 20 minutes talking about mushroom farming and how important it was to like turn an empty floor into like a green space and have like a farmer's market where local people can come and bring their stuff from allotments to sell it. So does that happen on any of your sites? Uh, we we now have urban gardens in two of our buildings. Okay. So it's ch- change is happening. Yeah, I think I, I think one of the key things as a, from our point of view as a supplier is that increasingly we're having to prove and demonstrate um, ESG credentials um, out there rather than just say, yeah, we do this and we do that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where it's really it's stretching it uh, to sort of say, you know, we we have to absolutely show it, um, and that's why I, you know I'm I'm interested to know your organisation where it it does things for. Um, in t- you talk about pro bono stuff that you do and stuff, and I assume is there volunteering days with your employees and how's, yeah, how we, does that we, work? We we do things like foreshore litter collections and stuff. Okay, but, but I, I I see a lot of that on LinkedIn. And I see one, one or two of the same organizations that promote those days. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great. But, you know, we do things like me personally, I, I slept in the loading bay at the bow of one of our buildings in Old Street to raise money for land aid for sleep out. Um, you know, we did a park walk that I think we just probably put just one post on LinkedIn for it. But um, our, our chairman and, and a lot of the other uh, people in our organization walked I think it was 26.6 miles. It was the length of the London Marathon Okay, in a day to raise money for land aid. Now, that cost to our business, bearing in mind we're, we're only a small business, um, we probably had 30 people doing that, in, engaging that. So the percentage of our business was huge. Mm-hmm. You know, things like mental health. So we've got five mental health first aiders in our business now, um, and we've got 10 ambassadors. As okay. a percentage of our business is huge. And it's because we we, we genuinely believe it we, we don't use it as a selling tool. In fact, um, we don't really pitch for business. You know, the majority of our business is word of mouth or okay. it's client, client to client, um, and there will be recommendations. Um, I think we, you know, we should push more on our ESG credentials because we do some fantastic work. But w- w- back to your point on sort of the procurement side, I, I get involved in a lot of tenure and exercises. Um and I've started to ask the organizations that we ask a tender for us to include a lot more on sustainability and a lot less on the cleaning or security because we know those guys can do it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, a very small industry. It's a given. We know you can clean. But actually, tell us what more you do. Tell us what you do for your staff. How, what, tell us about your culture. I think we find that a lot more interesting, mm-hmm. a lot more engaging. And so you, on the procurement side, you would score against them a, a score. We do. Right. Yeah, we do on our scoring matrix. It's got sustainability. Okay. And it's not just have you got uh, 18,001, 14,001. It's what do you do for sustainability? And, and and we like to see evidence of that. And, again, it's not the certificate. It's here's pictures of us, you know, sponsoring a local football team. Here's us at the games. Here's us, you know, doing some volunteering it's it's evidence because okay. we know that's then embedded in the culture and the core of the business. 
that's important that i think that i think that's very important um but the other area that um i want to ask you about is how important um are sustainability issues uh with the supplier that you work with uh i think it's going to be uh, extremely important when we get to things like scope free emissions okay because that's when we're going to start asking for our supply chain's evidence of their carbon usage okay um whether they source materials or um, any of the products or from a cleaning perspective if you source a product locally um as opposed to importing it or bringing it in from vast distances we're going to have to know that raw data mm-hmm. because we're going to be judged on it just as much as you guys would yeah you're going to be asked the questions from yeah. your um from your from your client side as well so that that'll, that'll become fundamental okay. because of that reason but equally from a moral perspective, it's going to be really important. Um, you know, as I'm sure you guys are aware, we're doing things like biohygiene, cleaning a lot of our buildings now. So, yeah. you know, we, we like we like the organisations we work with, the service partners we work with to be sustainable because that that benefits us. Mm-hmm. We feel that they're on the same page. We feel yeah. they're aligned to our culture, aligned to our expectations. Um, as I said, morally, it's the right thing to do. Um, but we also will understand then that if things cost slightly more, then we can have that argument with occupiers from a service charge yes. perspective. And that's a challenge, of course. Yeah, it is a challenge, yeah. And, you know, we, we things like the bioenzyme cleaning, when we put that in, um, that was cost neutral. So there was no impact on the service charge. It was mm. an absolute no-brainer to do it. But there are things that do cost extra money. Mm. But if you can sit down with a client and with the occupiers and have that conversation, you know, they'll understand a lot more. And to have that service partner with you in the room and say that this is us, we're, we're, we're a team. Mm-hmm. This is a joint up approach. Um, so if they're aligned, then it, it makes a huge difference. Yes. I mean, it's something that we at Hawkey Cleaning Support Services are very, very big on is, is how staff are treated and particularly on the, the real living wage issues. Um, all of those particular things are massively important to us. Um, it's getting easier to convince uh, clients mm. um, because obviously there are issues with em- employment, the right people now because uh, I read somewhere there's about a million jobs out there that can't be filled. Yeah. So getting the right candidates and getting them to stay, one needs to pay a lot a lot more for that. Yeah. Um, a question I always ask um, uh, uh, podcasters is, and I think you touched upon it a little bit, but uh, just wanted to put it to you, is what's um, what's your biggest regret in your career to date? I think, giving it some from some further thought, I, I think it's probably not having enough of a, an influence on others, not having the time to develop the future generations. So mentoring, you would like? Yeah, I, th- I think anybody... There's can- still time. Yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah, and any, anybody could be a manager, and I think we we throw the the title of manager around quite freely, mm-hmm. but people forget that being a manager is being a mentor, it's being a coach, it's being a supporting person, and uh, I think I, I've struggled to do that partly early on because I was probably focused on my own career, okay, um, but equally because time constraints didn't allow. So there was pressure to perform, perform, perform. And unfortunately, if, you, if, if you're good at your job, you're going to be asked to pick up a lot more. Yes, you're, um, you can be a victim of your own success. Yeah, you're spread thin. 
and, and being spread thin means you can't you can't offer your time and I, and I think that's that's the biggest one because I, I've worked with some fantastic people who I think and, and in some cases they have gone on to do really good things and they perform really well and they were they good mentors to you um yes but I think the industry changed I think the requirements of us of, of fms now um things like you know health and safety portals where you've got to put documentation on constantly before it used to be in a folder nice and easy you know the maintenance guy gives you a sheet you hole punch it put it in a folder it's there yeah now it's you've got to log in you've got to do this um you know the service charge systems i used to stamp my invoices and sign them and they go in a folder that was it Right. At the end of the year, you reconcile because you go through the invoices. Now there's systems for everything. Innovation is great and technology is great. But before, I think people would have a lot more time to sit with somebody. The the, the pressure. And I think expectation as well has changed. Do you think, um, okay, on the mentoring, you've mentioned that's a slight regret. It's something that I would argue that is still something that you are still in your career and where Mm. something that could be, uh, change and stuff and obviously being on this podcast is a mentoring process yeah. to others um do, do you think that that may have been the choice of why you've gone from bigger companies to smaller companies to try and free up some of your time to be able to do things that you enjoy rather than uh, you're under the pressure in the bigger companies yeah i'm 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 happier now than i've probably been in the last 20 years in the okay. industry um i used to have this thing like a sunday blues so you'd sit there on a sunday evening and i, I wouldn't talk to my family um i wouldn't really be engaging because all i'll be thinking about is oh, my god i've got to go back to work tomorrow and what am i going to walk into what am i going to face and you like know, tomorrow's like, a school night isn't it yeah so it, it wasn't it wasn't fun um now i sit there on a sunday and i love it I can't wait to get back to work. And actually, my family are involved in it. Okay. Um, not like I'm taking the work home, but it because we are like a family, Ashdown Phillips, it's they're, they're, they're part of it. So we, we did a, a sustainability video and it was lovely. And, and it was, you know, we could employ a company to come in and make this video for us. But actually, no, let's let's write what we want to write and then we'll get our children to read it out. And that's what we did, and and that can be, for our listeners. That's online. Is it's it? online. Yeah. Okay. So. It's online. Yeah. It's our Ashton Phillips Sustainability Pledge. Okay. I'll uh, I'll have a, a watch of that myself. Yeah. Um, we've talked about your regret. Now, what's your biggest achievement in your career to date? Um, I think it's the fact that I I grew up on a on a council estate in South London. Um and i did okay at school i didn't do exceptionally well i probably didn't do anything until i was about 14 15 and then started knuckling down because my parents basically told me you you, you know now's the time to start working um and i can remember being on you know hands and knees in dulce's shoe shop with people looking at me walking past i mean these are only people that are selling shoes by the way as well you know these, these mm. aren't you know these weren't you know I don't think Dulce is around anymore. Isn't no, it's no, it's not. Um, But but these these guys were um, looking down their noses, and I think the fact that I've gone from from there and being a security officer chasing people down the road that had stolen legs of lamb from Marks and Spencers when I was on four pounds ninety five an hour, um, (laughs) that's a fantastic achievement. And now I I sit with clients, and I'm 
I'm working with them on designing the, the buildings of the future, mm. that, you know, a 250 million pound investments for them. Mm. And they're listening to me and they're taking my opinion into consideration. Um, that's a huge achievement to, to go from there. Okay. And I think, you know, the fact that I, so I, I'm currently um, stationed in one of our buildings just supporting in the development phase. And we're going through the recruitment of the new team for this brand new development. Okay. And I insist on seeing Everybody. every single person. Absolutely. You know, every, every cleaner, every clean supervisor, just say hello. It's a people-facing business. But yeah, yeah. So, you know, we have to make sure they they not just represent the clean organization, but they represent us, they represent our client, they represent the occupiers, you know, and that's important. And it's important that they also feel important. Yes. They feel respected. Um, but, you know, we, we, we make them feel part of our family. Um, you know, and I, I remember during the first lockdown, the first Easter, in fact, um, myself and one of our senior directors were driving around London delivering Easter eggs to all the cleaning and security staff that were based in the buildings. Mm. And, it, and it wasn't a PR stunt. It was just, let's go to Tesco's, let's buy 250 quid's worth of Easter eggs and let's take them around and just surprise everybody. Well, it was the only essential shop open probably at the time. So <laughs> yeah. um, there going around as Easter bunnies would probably be yeah. a useful thing to do. Yeah. So... No, that's very commendable. And um, just finally, uh, finally, um, I just want to ask Gary, really, um, what what things in life, it could be work or leisure, that gives you the greatest satisfaction and enjoyment? Um, I think I've always had a, um, a passion to, to, to fix things. So we, we spoke about the, the toilet at the very beginning of the conversation, that it was the... That was dirty. Now I've cleaned it. Okay. I've fixed it. So fixing problems, be that personally, you know, domestically with friends, with family, um, part of my job is to fix problems. Uh, and I think that gives me huge amounts of pleasure that if I can walk in, there's a situation, everyone's pulling their hair out and running around and I can go and calm the situation down, fix it. And everybody leaves happy or happier than they came in. It gives me huge amounts of pleasure. Okay, so whether it's fixing it in the workplace or it's a domestic situation, you are a fixer. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay. I think so. I think on that note, it's good, always good to have a fix. Um, I, I think that that brings us uh, the to the end of our sixth episode of Wear Many Hats podcast. Um. We hope that uh, our listeners have found this a very interesting listen, as I have. And we thank uh, Gary Metcalf for taking the chair today. Um, I think it's been both, again, thought-provoking, engaging, and we welcome our listeners' feedback uh, from uh, the sixth podcast. Thank you once again. Thank you.